0: Doing all right? Doing good. All right. Before we start, we're going to talk a little bit about Father's Day appreciation. Now, you know what? It's, uh, we'll just get into this first, actually. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've asked people to kind of write in some tributes uh, to men in their life, uh, fathers or men of influence, men who have been there for you. And a couple came in, and we picked a couple as our winners. And so I'm going to read those off to you and just announce who won our prizes this time around, our prize is a mini fridge. So each of these uh, gentlemen won themselves a new fridge. And so the first one is Nosa Edemudia. And uh, yeah, awesome. And here's, here was the tribute written to him. Uh, for this Father's Day, this is written from his wife. I nominate my husband, Nosa, for being one of the best fathers any child could have. For his spiritual guidance to myself and the kids... Gentle personality that I always pray for my kids to imitate. A father that hardly ever raises his voice, yet the kids get the message when he speaks. In my 12 years of marriage to this perfect gentleman, not once has he raised his voice so loud at me or the kids in anger. He's always so gracious with his words. Sometimes I wonder how he does that. He has been like a father to me too since my own biological father passed on. Always willing to listen and give support when needed. His generosity and loving care to us and others is something I also admire about him, always willing to help. Apart from all these attributes, most importantly, he is a true servant of God, one who loves people and genuinely has a heart for the things of the kingdom, especially for his own calling and praise and worship ministry. And these are just a few reasons why I nominate him. And so that's from his wife, Charity. And so, Nosa, we got a a, a mini fridge for you. And we're going to hook you up with that probably tomorrow morning. Uh, The second winner that we have is Peter Brown. And uh, I'm going to read out just the nomination that came in for him. I'm nominating Peter Brown, my husband and the father of our two girls, Joelle and Ireland. Peter is an amazing provider for our family. He dedicates himself to us every day. Not only does he work full-time, but now he's working on one of his own dreams by getting his MBA online through the University of Fredericton. I don't know how many 40-somethings would do that. Peter is a wonderful husband, a loving dad, and a godly man of great character, Jamie Brown, his wife. And so, Peter, we're going to present you as well with a fridge. And uh, to all the men tonight, we just want to honor you, tell you we love you. Thank you so much for all you do in the lives of so many. And uh, with that in mind, let's get into tonight's message. As we get back into the book of Acts, into our series, Unfinished. We, we we kind of titled this sort of appropriately, I guess, eh? Since we're kind of segueing back into it after talking about reno time. But I just want to give a shout out to everyone in the room wearing a jersey tonight. Uh, some of you are probably immediately thinking, Pastor Jordan, we know you have jerseys. Why don't you have one on? And uh, here's the honest truth. It is sitting on my couch in a bag that was supposed to come with me this evening, okay? I didn't want to wear it all day. And so I'm sorry. I know my New York Jets would have really just prettied this room up, right? Having that jersey just, you know, from the front, from the pulpit, seeing the New York Jets on. You know, I, I know people would have really have appreciated that. So with that in mind, as we get into the book of Acts, let me give you a sports sermon illustration as we start. Now, how many of you know that sports fans are passionate? Anyone? Maybe a little too passionate. I don't sit very often during NFL games. I tend to pace. I get my exercise in, I promise, okay? That's what it is. I'm just trying to get my steps in. But, uh, sort of. But in the NFL, or in sports in general, there are rivalries. And there are certain teams that don't like other teams, believe it or not. But you know what is one of the greatest acts? Actually, we can go back to that last slide. You know what one of the greatest acts of betrayal in sports is, is when a player who's known to play for a team for a long time, or if there's some sort of just like special connection with that team, if he leaves that team, but worse, if he leaves that team to go play for the enemy, are you with me? And go play for the rival team. And so I got a few pictures up there. You see Bill Belichick to the left. He signed a one-year contract in 2000 in one with the New York Jets for one day. And then he asked out of his contract the next day and signed a contract with the New England Patriots who are our bitter rival. And yes, he went on to create a dynasty over there and we're not bitter as Jets fans about that, okay? But it happened. LeBron James played for his hometown Cleveland Cavaliers when he came into the league and four years later was was not happy with the situation. Wanted a better chance to win. Did this little ESPN program called The Decision. Said he was taking his talents to South Beach and joining the Miami Heat. And people went nuts. Anyone remember this? Right? They were burning his jersey. They weren't happy about it. But maybe the greatest betrayal of them all, and I know JC is going to love this one. Because I can see the jersey he's wearing tonight. Is probably Brett Favre when he left the Green Bay Packers to go play for the rival Minnesota Vikings. Right? And uh, and I remember fans just couldn't believe it. You want to talk about an act of betrayal to a sports team. That's how people felt. I have another picture here, which is just slightly funny. This is Toronto uh, last week when those Montreal Canadians unceremoniously eliminated our Jets. And in Toronto, where the Canadians eliminated Toronto... This is what the CN Tower looked like. They decorated it and the Habs fans are clapping here, right? They decorated it in Habs colors. Like you want to talk about betrayal and, 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 and rooting for the enemy. See, I, I, I kind of side with Toronto fans here. I'm sorry. You know, that'd be tough to see every day, you know, going downtown after something like that transpiring. But fan bases often feel betrayed. Often feel mocked. Sometimes they feel as if you left us and went and played for the enemy. Now you're asking me, why are you talking about this tonight? Well, this is precisely what is being felt in the book of Acts chapter 22. And so if you want to open your Bibles or your phones, go to Acts chapter 22. Not only has the Apostle Paul left the fold faith-wise in accepting Jesus... But now he's leaving his people group and quote-unquote going to minister to who many people feel are the enemy here. And he's telling them what he believes is the truth, the good news of the gospel, that he believes that the old covenant finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so this was a discussion and talk that the Apostle Paul had been anticipating. He looked forward to addressing the people in Jerusalem so many times and so many times it seemed like it just never worked out for him to get there and so in Acts 22 verse 1 let's let's start to read here it says this it says brothers and fathers listen now to my defense and when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet now that's a key detail he, he, he was showing them, when he spoke in their language, I, I, I am with you, I'm one of you, okay? That's why that detail's there. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamma Leal, that's name dropping, okay? And was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them um, to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Who Are you Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of Him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said. And go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And when I returned to Jerusalem... Sorry, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Now listen. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. So there's a lot happening there. I'm going to give you just a little background of what's going on here. You see, Paul's made his way to to his people. He's always wanted to witness and speak to the Jewish people. Even though God had clearly sent him on mission to the Gentiles, he wanted to go and speak. And while in Jerusalem, the people wanted him arrested and killed. And they had a couple of objections against him. That he was encouraging people to turn away from some of their traditions and customs of the law, but also... They thought that he defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was actually a false assumption. But they saw him with a Gentile, and they'd assumed that he'd brought him into the temple. And it says in Acts 21, um, 27 to 29, When the seven days were nearly over, some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, this place, because he has brought many Greeks. He's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. And they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so they arrested him, and they wanted him put to death. But in chapter 22, what we just read, that long portion, the Apostle Paul gets a chance to share his story and his testimony with the Jewish audience. And he talks about where he's from, and he talks about his background, and he talks about how he was raised, and he he, 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 he talked about how he was taught by a well-known teacher of the Pharisees named Gamaliel, And when people heard that, that would have been like an instant respect thing. Like, oh, wow, he taught you. Okay, okay. so you're one of his students. So he would have instantly got some credit with the crowd by saying that. In fact, the text says that he speaks to them in Aramaic, which was purposeful. He wanted them to know that he was indeed a fellow Jew. And he talks to them about how he's experienced Jesus, what Jesus did in his life. In verse 14, he talks about the call of God on his life that God revealed his will to him, that God allowed him to see the righteous one. Righteous one literally means the Messiah, the one who we were waiting for and expecting, being Jesus. Um, And Paul was able to hear literally the voice of God. And he's telling them this. And God was using him to witness of all that God had done for him. And then he says that God told him in a trance to leave as the Jewish people weren't going to accept his testimony. But then things take a big turn in verse 21. And it wasn't because of anything he said was snarky to them. He didn't accuse them of anything. It wasn't even because he spoke of Jesus, but the crowd suddenly lost it and started calling for his death. And there was a big uproar. And what did Paul say that struck such a nerve with the crowd? Well, we see it in verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the... Gentiles, one word, literally one word changed the trajectory of that talk, okay? The reason why I use a sports illustration is because some of us, we can be okay with things until we hear hackers or until we hear something or until we hear a political figure that we don't like. You know, we can listen until we hear something that sets us off. That's exactly what is happening here. The second that Paul suggested that God may be interested at all in reaching the Gentiles, the crowd immediately stopped listening to him. And not only did they stop listening to him, but they said, rid the earth of him, right? He's not fit to live. And they were upset, and they were angry. And it was such a dramatic shift. You see, they could handle Paul's story. They seemed to even be okay listening to him. Talk about Jesus and all that he'd done in his life. Whether they believed it or not, they would still listen to it. But the minute the Apostle Paul echoed that got the word Gentiles, that God might be interested in the Gentiles, the crowd snapped and they called for his death. Rid the earth of him, they shouted. He is not fit to live. And they threw off their cloaks and they started throwing dust in the air scripture says. And Paul has to be removed from this situation if you keep reading and taken away really for his safety. And so what are some things that we can take away from chapter 22 that will not only, um, I think, give us guidance and shape how we live in this world, but perhaps how we see other people in this world? Well, here's the first point I want to make, okay, is that you have a story to share. Okay? Anyone who follows Jesus has a story to share. In the book of Matthew, at the very, very end, the last thing Jesus said to them in, in, in chapter 28, he wrote, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. You see, the gospel was never intended to be personal in a sense that we hear it, keep it to ourselves, don't bother talking about it with anyone else. But the gospel is a message that spreads, amen? And the nature of the message is that it spreads and that others need to hear it. I know, I like how one Christian commentator in my studies this past week um, talked about the role of evangelism in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. He said this, he said, if we forget to share the gospel, then we have literally lost sight of the thrust of biblical Christianity. It's tough words to hear. But if we forget to share the gospel, we have lost sight of the thrust of biblical Christianity. You see, sharing the gospel was never just thrown in as something optional or something extra as we follow Jesus, but it's something that we must share, we must speak of, we must live. If it changed your life, then of course you want the gospel to change other people too. Amen? In the book of Luke, Jesus, after ministering to someone in Luke chapter 8, says this, says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. I think each one of us can identify things in our life that Jesus has done for us. And we would do well to tell people about it. You see, there's this call to tell others about what Jesus has done for us, and sometimes it's just that simple. Just share about how your life used to be, where it is now, much like what the Apostle Paul was doing in chapter 22 as he addressed the crowd. You see, in 1 Peter, we read this. We, we read, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness And respect. I want to pause on those two words for a second. There are certain ways in which we can approach people that can be gentle and respectful. There are other ways we can approach people that are anything but gentle and respectful. In Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said it like this He said, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, meaning those outside of the church. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And so treat other people with that same respect that you want to be treated with. Recognize that not everyone thinks like you. And I think that's important for us to understand. And so when we share Jesus with people, I think a good piece of advice is that we keep the attention on what we're for on who we're for and not what we're against or who we're against, okay? We can find fall into all sorts of bunny trails by talking about, well, we're against this or we're against this or this is what we're against and this is what we're against. How many of you know the world knows a lot of what Christians are against, right? What the world really needs to know is who Christians are for, okay? Who are we for? How has Jesus changed our life? right? And so share what God has done for you. You have a story to share because sharing the gospel was never intended to be optional, but it's truly foundational for people who follow Jesus. And I think sometimes we we sometimes shy away from sharing in our culture, probably for a variety of reasons. Perhaps we're afraid to say the wrong thing or offend someone. I think we've all been there, right? You're afraid to, 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 to not say it right or to, to offend somebody. Perhaps we haven't thought purposely about how we can share this message with specific people in ways that might help them understand it better. Um, maybe we're afraid that people won't want to hear it. And so that fear keeps us, and it, we shy away thinking that, you know, we can't change people's opinions. We can't change people's perspectives. And you're right, you can't, okay? Okay. You cannot do it on your own, but Jesus can by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's something I think that we need to remember, that we're not responsible for the results when we share the gospel with people, when we share our lives with people. We are simply responsible to be faithful and sharing the message. Are you with me? In 1 Corinthians 3, it says this, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll each be rewarded according to their own labor. And so take the pressure off. Our job isn't to change other people. We can't do it. We're not not strong enough and fit to do that, but God can. And we can trust that God will do that. Our job is simply to be faithful, to speak about what Jesus has done in our lives. Amen? So that's the first point I think we can take from Acts chapter 22. Second point is simply this. This is going to seem so simple to you, yet I think it's so profound. The message of Jesus is for everyone. Okay? And we're going to understand this with a little bit more depth (laughs) because of the objections of the people in the crowd that day. Okay, the Apostle Paul is addressing in his letters often the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And I think he gives us a couple of key verses that reveal God's will. And so speaking of Gentiles, many times in the book of Romans, we read his words that say, um, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to living according, it, according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And so writing to Greeks here, here he says to them, you are sons and daughters adopted into sonship. And you cry, Abba, father, you're a part of the family. You once felt excluded, but in Christ Jesus, you are a son and a daughter. And you cry, Abba, father. You see that father, the one God of heaven and earth is your father. You're a son and daughter. Now, Might that be threatening to hear if you are somebody who cares about borders and boundaries among people? Those words might not come off exactly how they should. Could these words be offensive if you feel that some people are accepted by God and others aren't? And that's exactly the type of audience Paul is dealing with. You see, Paul clearly states that some people that some of you think are out in Christ, they're actually in. In Ephesians, he says it like this. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, I'm just throwing that in there, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making Peace and so these two groups, Jewish Jews and Gentiles. Jesus came to destroy the barriers and the wall of hostility that was built up between these groups. There is now, for the Christian, no hostility or barrier between you and whoever you consider to be the other, that other person in your life. And if you are a Gentile, and we talked about this in Acts fifteen you don't need to convert to Judaism in order to be a part of faith in Jesus or to have faith in Jesus. In other words, Christ meets us right where we are, regardless of where we are. And so if you're Jewish, Paul says Christ is literally the fulfillment of the law. And if you are Gentile, he says you do not need to become Jewish. Christ meets you right where you are, and also challenges Gentiles in the process of transformation. And so Paul is a both-and person. He, he seems to suggest that Christ will transform both groups from within. And he's telling them both that you are sons and daughters who can cry, Abba, Father. But sometimes as people, we struggle with embracing each other, don't we? We struggle sometimes with embracing each other. And that's the third point that I want to make here. You know, as Christians, we are to embrace one another. You see, the very mention of the word Gentile here seems to bring some strong emotions. So much so that they want to put Paul to death. There was so much strong prejudice and hatred between these groups. And the very mention that God cares for Gentile people was just too much for the people in the crowd that day. And maybe they thought something like this. Maybe they thought, well, God can't love them because we can't. And God can only love those whom we love, can only approve of whom we approve of, and can only care for those who we care for. And in their minds, they had an inner circle with God and the Gentiles weren't invited to this party. And yet... Any of us who have read and studied scripture knows that God won't be boxed in ever by our opinions, by our preferences, by our comforts, even our desires. And we dare not try to create God into a God that we're comfortable with or that we approve of. And do we ever do this still? Do we ever find ourselves sometimes going down that line? You see, Anne Lamott said it like this. It was interestingly. She said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And we dare not try to put our opinions out there and add, oh, that was from God at the end of them. We've got to be careful against doing that because he is God alone and he chooses whom he loves and whom he accepts. And he doesn't need us. God doesn't need you or I to be his general manager. Okay? He doesn't need us to handle his business, to take care of the things that he is more than fit to take care of. And he knows what's best. And we need to look no further than the life of Jesus to see that people were often shocked and offended by the people whom Jesus chose to spend his time with, weren't they? Right? You know, Jesus hung out with tax collectors like Zacchaeus here, standing up in a tree, right? Jesus hung out with people who were considered traitors or were considered Terrible in society. He was approaching women at the well and having conversations, which was a no-no. He was demonstrating love and care, even for a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, we read about. He was hanging out with known sinners. He was touching lepers. He was commending Samaritans, making them the hero of the story in a culture that despised them. And Jesus spends time with those that the religious teachers would have thought that God would have certainly avoided or had no time for. And that's who he spent time with. Amen. And that's who he spent time with. You see, Jesus' love for people, all people brought many truths to light. And that took the religious teachers by surprise. Namely, he taught them this, that all sin is equal. And that we've all sinned. We all have the same common problem. We are all as a humanity in the same boat here in that we have all missed the mark. And that's a starting point for faith for all of us. And the religious teachers of the day had no room for outsiders or sinners and those not of whom they thought were the people of God. And so this, I think, when we read something like this serves as a warning to us that we dare not like the Pharisees, try to measure our goodness by trying to compare it to everyone else's bad stuff, right? Or shortcomings. But we all have the same problem. All of us are equally sinful. Paul in the book of Romans says it like, and Romans says it like this, all have sinned and fallen short. None is perfect. All have missed the mark. And yet Jesus didn't just come for good people. He didn't just come for nice people. He didn't just come for certain people that we comfortable with, but he came for all people. And that's what the Apostle Paul's life demonstrated as he took the gospel even to the Gentiles, right? And so are you okay with God being God? Are you okay with the fact that God can take care of his own business? You see, when I think of this anger towards even a mention of the word Gentiles from this crowd, you know where my mind immediately went this past week? It went to the prophet Jonah. Anyone ever read the book of Jonah before? You guys familiar with it? You see, I'm going to give you a bullet point version really quickly of the book of Jonah. Okay? When God asked people, when God asked Jonah to go and speak his word to the Ninevites, he wanted nothing to do with it because he didn't like them. He hated those people. They were his enemies. And so rather than going and doing what God asked him to do, Jonah, we know what happened, jumped on a ship, sailed for another destination, while he's on the ship, a sail a, a storm breaks out. He's sleeping while everyone's praying and freaking out, right? And then eventually they realize that it's probably because of him that this storm has come upon the boat. And so Jonah offers to be thrown overboard. So they huck him out of the boat. And then he spends a few days in the belly of a fish, right? Just an ordinary summer vacation to some of us, right? But, you know, he spends a few days in the belly of the fish, talks to God, prays, repents, has time to think about what he did. He gets back, gets an opportunity again. God says, go and speak to the people in Nineveh. And this time he obeys and he does it, okay? And to his surprise, they actually repent. They repented, okay? So we take it up here in chapter four. But Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong that they repented and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see, Jonah, for some reason was very upset at God's grace. Like when you think about attributes of God that make you mad, doesn't grace just tick you off anyone, right? Probably not, right? You probably don't think that way. But Jonah, in this case, certainly did. And this same God who extended grace to Jonah so many times in that book, if you read through it, okay? So many times he extended grace to Jonah, will also extend grace to Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites. And they repent, and Jonah is not happy about this. He's outraged, and he can't even conceive of God extending mercy to them. But time and time and time again in Scripture, we see that we, see, we serve a God who doesn't just tolerate people or is neutral about people, but we serve a God of love who loves people, all people. And as his followers, our responsibility is also to love those he loves and follow him. You see, in life, we're given so many choices. And so there are things in this world that we get to choose and make choices about. We get to choose whom we support. We can choose our values. We can choose whom we vote for, or whom we look up to, or who we admire. We can choose things like who we're going to associate with, who we're going to become friends with. But what we do not get to choose, what we never get to choose as Christians is we do not get to choose whom we love. We do not get to choose those whom we love. That's not left to us. And this story of Jonah is telling that God showed him grace so much saved his life. And when he finally obeys God and goes and preaches to Nineveh and they repent, rather than seeing joy, he's outraged and he's upset. And he's sitting there in the heat. Imagine sitting on the beach with a heat wave with no hat, glasses, or shade. And so God, what does he do? He provides Jonah a comfort. This little vine or gourd or plant grows up to give him some shade. And Jonah loves that. He's excited about that. It keeps him comfortable in the hot weather. But the story tells us the next day the Lord provided a worm that chewed up the plant and it withered. And so now Jonah's even angrier that the plant's gone. And it's an interesting reaction because here's what we see. Jonah seems to love the idea of God's provision and blessing for him, but he hates the fact that God wants to graciously provide for the people of Nineveh. He can't stand those people and what they've done. And maybe we have our own parallels in our own lives where we can think of things like that. Watch CNN for a week. Watch the news for a week, okay? You're probably gonna come up with people who, who in, in, maybe you won't think it actually in your head, but in your heart of hearts, you're gonna probably think they don't deserve that mercy. They don't deserve that grace. And the last thing you're gonna wanna think about is that God's love is for Everybody. But God isn't merely interested in Jonah's comfort, but what he cares about is Jonah's character. And the neighborhood church, he cares about that for us as well. And God's showing Jonah how he became so wrapped up in himself, even just enjoying temporal things more than eternal things with that little vine. God says, you care about your little plant and comfort? Well, I care about people. You see, God essentially says to Jonah, you take great joy in that plant flourishing, and you have great despair when that plant perishes but I have great despair God would say when people perish and I take great joy when people flourish amen and this is the heart of God for the world and God reveals Jonah's heart here he uses a plant this comfort in Jonah's life to illustrate how he's allowed it to distract him from what really matters and what really matters is people People being reconciled to the living God. You see, one of the ways that our love is different from God's love is that God always values people most. Thus the saying goes like this. I think I just have to slide. In God's city, the inhabitants love people and walk on gold, while in man's city, the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. And so the question we ask ourselves when we think about this, what, what, what does this have in our lives that we have to look at, do we value what God values? You see, God basically said to Jonah, you put value on what has the lowest value in the world. You value that plant so much. You felt compassion for it. You cared for something that cost you nothing. However, should I not put more value in human life for whom I've come for? And the book of Jonah ends not with a nice, you know, celebratory ending. We don't even know how it ends, really. Where Jonah sees is wrong and repents and everything's good. He gets back to the heart of God. We we don't see that happening, but it ends with a question. And it says this. God simply says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. And sometimes when I read this book, I ask myself, I wonder if Jonah ever got it. But you know what? That's probably not the right question to ask. The right question to ask probably isn't, did Jonah get it? The question to ask is, do I get it? Do we get it? And so how do we see other people? Do we sit back like Jonah sometimes, waiting for the worst to happen to them or for them to get what they deserve? Or do we allow God's heart to change us and move our hearts to compassion and love for lost people? And so back to Acts chapter 22. And we're going to conclude here just talking about this, but we see here this Jewish crowd was okay with Paul talking about his upbringing, his life, even his encounter with Jesus. They listened to that, but the minute he mentioned their nemesis and their enemies, just the mention of the word Gentiles, it set something off, and they were calling for his death, and they threw um, dust in the air, it says, as protest. And so we ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves this, are we ever guilty of throwing up some dust when certain people are mentioned? Is that ever well up within you? Maybe you've been throwing some dust in the air. Maybe you have, you think those people, you know, the people over there, that's the real problem with the world right now. And we're the righteous group. We have it all together. And there are some people and groups that, you know, just make your blood boiling by the mere mention of their names or, 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 or who they are. You just feel hostility rising up. But here's what's tough: is that sometimes after throwing so much dust in the air, it's very difficult to even see the other. And you can't even see your common humanity anymore. And there's too much at stake. And you're too threatened, and your identity is too threatened, and you're throwing dust in the air, and you can't see clearly anymore and even who they are. Church, redemption, healing comes when we can see whoever the other is as a real human being. Healing comes when we can see the other as a real human being, not as a category, as those people over there who do this and this and this and this, or those people on the opposite side of the fence, but redemption comes when we can see that others are just like us, loved and needy before God. I think this is what Paul is communicating even that day to the crowd that God didn't just come for one nation he came for all nations amen not just one tribe but for all tribes not just for one ethnicity but for all ethnicities and meets us exactly where we are and that takes some radical cleaning of our lens I think sometimes if we're truly going to understand it if your lens is too cloudy If you've thrown too much dust in the air, you just can't see clearly or very well. You can't see the other. And the other becomes abstract and not even real. But when you can see someone, even someone that you have a difficult time being near as as fully human, you are one step closer, I believe, to where Jesus wants you to be and how you see others. And I believe Jesus invites us into a cleaning of our lens, a clarification of our vision, so that we can see on the other side of these perceived walls and fences and barriers, real human beings who are desperately in need of God. A full son or daughter, loved by God in the same way that we are. And in the moment that begins to happen, walls of hostility start to come down. And it's not about having certain beliefs or certain boundaries, right? Have your beliefs, have your boundaries, that's fine. Everyone should have them. But the problem is, is when they become hostile and when it becomes us versus them kind of thinking and mentality. And I think what we're being invited into when we read through a story like this, when we think about Jonah's life, is a cleaning of our own lens. Who is the other? who really gets under your skin. And if you were to ask me, I think, what the hardest thing about Christianity is, I'll ask the band to come forward. If you were to ask me, what's the hardest thing about Christianity? I think I'd probably answer, it's the call to love your neighbor as yourself. Which, interestingly enough, Jesus says is the most important thing we can do. And yet it can be a difficult thing to do. It can be an ongoing process, and we continue to be confronted on people who we perceive to be those people who annoy us. And being confronted by the words of Paul and Jesus, I believe as we do that and as we walk with God, we will allow the walls of hostility to collapse, for we are all in need before him, and we all need him equally tonight. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word tonight. And it's difficult for us sometimes, Lord. And Lord, we bring all sorts of preconceived notions and thoughts sometimes into our hearts and lives. God, my prayer tonight is that you'd help us to clean our lens. Lord, that you'd help us to see the way perhaps that we ourselves throw dust in the air and object at people receiving love and mercy. Help us to see on the other side of our walls, Lord, fences and barriers, real human beings who are loved by you. Lord, for those of us who perhaps just need to feel loved by you, I pray, God, that you would just reveal that to us tonight in such a real way, that you care for us, God, and that you love us, Lord. And so, Lord, my prayer is that you would just empower us, Lord God, that you'd speak to our hearts, God, that you would soften them and that you would remind us all the more of how much you love us so that we can go out and love other people. Thank you that we are all full sons and daughters who can cry out to you, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.